But this Sunday, as, as they've already mentioned, we are finishing uh, this teaching series that we've called Wells. And what, a, what an amazing story we've been looking at, hasn't it been? I mean, we've been looking at John, uh, in John 4, the story of Jesus and the woman at the well. If you haven't been with us, we've been, you're not going to be able to capture it all this week, but we've been taking little pieces of it and just looking at what Jesus was up to, because he was up to a whole bunch of stuff in this passage. And it wasn't just Jesus, but really just the whole story of God that's been going on and the whole narrative of what Scripture's about, you see come alive in this passage and some of the really, really rich, deep things that God offers us when He calls us His children, but when He offers us living water. And so I want to talk this morning about living well, meaning how do we become a living well as we journey through life and try to live well. And I think all of us would say there are people in life that we've met, they essentially serve as a living well, don't they? That those people that you just go to and you just want to be around and you just want to hear their stories and you just want to gain from them. You're just like, can I just sit by you like a sponge and you just like ooze out and I'll just soak it up. You know what I'm talking about? There's the, the grandparents and our life that we just want to be around and we want to hear their stories and we want to learn from their stories. Or that person that's 20 years ahead of you in, that, in your business and they've excelled and you're just like, can I just sit around you and be with you and, and learn from you? And I, th- I think for all of us, there's a desire not only to find people like that in our life, but I think each of us would love to have the kind of life in which we could be that for others, that we would be able to have not just the ability to live well, but to offer ourselves to those around us in such a way that um, it's really serving them, the kingdom. And one of those people in my life uh, over the last number of years has been Robert Ross. A lot of you know him as Rosser, and uh, you know he's been a living well. I go to, he's one of those guys I go to when I have questions, and he is a wealth of wisdom and a wealth of experience, and he has raised kids and now he has tons of grandkids, and he's uh, been done really well in his business. He has great restaurants that you guys have probably eaten at, like uh, he owns uh, Inner Urban and Packard's restaurants, and, there's, and he's been a part of it. Him and Nancy have been a part of our church for the last three years, and uh, I've known him, though, for about five, and, and I said, when I thought of this whole idea of living well, I said, you know, Ross, would you sit down and just kind of tell us um, what living well looks like for you? And so we sat down last week or so and did a little video. We're not really the greatest at video, just so you know, but we tried it. Why not, right? So we have a little video of um, Rosser and I talking about living well. Well, thanks. Yeah, thanks, Robert, for sharing. You know, it's pretty, it's pretty, uh, it's pretty cool whenever you have people in your life that you know that they've lived well you know that they are living well, and you can just ask them simple questions, and sometimes the answers aren't that complicated. <laughs> spend, more, spend time with your, your family. Uh, know when to say when on those sorts of things. And, you know, one of the things I've appreciated about Robert and Nancy over the years is just I know that they love the Lord, and I know that they uh, have raised kids. I mean, not, I mean, Father's Day, what better father should we, could we have gotten? Six kids and 15 grandkids. I mean, um, they have done and been an example for many of us. But there's a couple questions that I asked him in that that I think are going to be good for us as we move forward into this the rest of our time. I asked him, what does li- living well look for, like for you when it comes to your family? You know, how, do we, how are you, how does it, what does it look like to leave a legacy in some ways? What does it look like to have and live 
with your family in such a way that it honors the Lord? I asked that question, and I know some of you aren't necessarily leading families yet, but we're mostly, we could all say, we could mostly say, uh, well, at least we're part of a family, even if it's, you know, one of those families, right? We're, we're there. We all have a family. And then the second question asked is, what about when you follow Christ? Um, what's been important to you? What does living well look like? And I, those are two questions that I want to sort of ask today. A little bit about you and your life and your family, a little bit about you and your life with Christ. What does it look like to live well? And those are sort of big questions, aren't they? They're sort of like, what's, what, what, what really matters to you? You know, when I was in seminary, there's a professor, and he would always ask, what's your dash about? <laughs> and I was like, what, what does this mean? And he said, well, when you die, you're going to have a tombstone, and it's going to have a date when you were born and a date when you die, and there's a dash in between. And that's really what matters, is what is the dash? What's the story of your life really about? And, and, and this is what I want to kind of get into because when we talk about living well, we're not just talking about, hey, what's some practical things? We're talking about your life, your dash, so to speak. What is the thing that's going to matter to you? And as we return to John 4, I want to look at something that Jesus brings up in this story that is one of those things that has connections to much, much larger meaning and more sweeping implications and uh, sort of the story behind the story. If you were with us a couple weeks ago, I said there's a couple ways you can always look at a, at, when you're reading scripture, there's a couple questions you can take to say, how can I study this deeper? I'll just throw them back on the screen for us, but it's, what's the story behind the story? Meaning, what's happening behind the story? What's the context, the historical background, the, the, what's, what's going on with the people in that story? All those sorts of things. And then how should the story transform us? And I use the word us intentionally because the scriptures are always written with an us mentality, never a me mentality. There's always an us and the nature of what Jesus is talking about, what the Scripture is saying. So we're going to get to John 4. We're going to start in verse 27. And so if you have a Bible, you can turn there. But if you know much about the story, and if you've been with us, Jesus has been interacting with this woman. They have a big, long conversation. It's pretty phenomenal what happens in it. All the while, the disciples are off uh, in town getting food. And then they return. And that's where we're going to pick this up in verse 27, which we focused on these few verses last week. But I'm going to start there again and then get into the next ones. Just then, his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. We've talked about that controversy, right? But no one asked, what do you want or why are you talking with her? Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to town and said to the people, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? So they came out of town, made their way toward him, and meanwhile the disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have no food to eat, or I have food to eat that you know nothing, nothing about. Then his disciples said to each other, could someone have brought him food? My food, said Jesus, is do the will of him who sent me to finish his work. Now we explored all that last week, right? Were you with us last week? And you remember we talked about the will and the work of God. And then in verse 35, we're going to get into this today. Don't you have a saying, it's still four months until harvest? I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Even now the one who reaps draws a wage and harvests a crop for eternal life, so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. Thus the saying, one sows, another reaps, is true. I sent you to reap what you have not worked for. Others have done the hard work, and you have reaped the benefits of their labor. All right, so what is he talking about? This is one of those, like, I sort of get it. I've heard the harvest kind of, you know, words before, the reaping and sowing. I, I sort of, but what is he saying? You've, you're about to reap what others have sown. 
he's saying, open your eyes and look at the fields, right, that are ripe for harvest. Now, he, imagine him speaking this literally to the disciples, and he's telling them to look around. What, is, what are they looking around at? They're looking around, they're standing by this well, and they're on the edge of this town, this city, right? And it says in verse 30 that who's coming towards them? The Samaritans, right? Remember, they're coming out towards them because she had just said, hey, come see this man. And so there's, imagine a big mob of people walking towards the disciples, and he says, hey, look, the harvest, the harvest is ripe. You're about to reap what you did not sow. Who sowed that? Well, Jesus and who else? The woman, right? With her testimony. And all of a sudden, there's a bunch of people coming to hear the words of Jesus. He says, guess what? We're about to be glad together. You're about to reap what you didn't even sow. Which just happens a lot in life. This, has, this story has all sorts of implications. How many of us have reaped what we didn't sow? <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? How many of us could say, I stood on the shoulders of my parents to get the education that I have and to get the things that I have in life and, the, and, and get the experiences that I need in order to get where I am today? How many of us could... If we really look back in our life, we could say, well, we are standing on the shoulders of our grandparents and our great-grandparents to really give us what we have today because we understood the hard work and the, the seeds they sowed to really make what's possible possible. Anybody with me on that, right? Or I love the story of Donald Trump when he said what? He said, I took a small $1 million loan from my parents, from my dad back in the mid-1970s to start his company, right? I mean, the, the, the amount's been debated, million, nine million, whatever, but let's just take the million-dollar mark. Inflation, that's $4.6 million today. How many of you would like a $4.6 million loan to get started? Okay, I will take it. <laughs> oh, man. So this has all sorts of implications about this idea that we reap what we haven't sown. He doesn't actually say that's a bad thing. He says we can be glad in this. But when we talk about this idea of even in a spiritual context, isn't this true? You think about the parents that have sowed the kingdom and have been diligently sowing in to their kids things from the gospel. Don't those kids later in life benefit those seeds that were sown into them? Or think about the parents who maybe don't necessarily take that intentional kind of focus of sowing spiritual seeds into their kids and so their kids grow up and they're just hoping that they sort of figure it out. And instead, what they've sowed into them are sort of cultural values of the world to say, hey, you know, you, you, you really need to work hard or you really need to make sure that you, you know, if you see something you like, acquire it. And there's, there's these sort of embedded things, even when they say work hard at education. And then there's all these understanding of things that they've sown into them. And then they go, why does my kid only care about, you know, success? Or why does my kid only care about, why are they so stressed out about their grades? And yet, the seeds that, have been sown or exactly that. So, when we read the scriptures, there's one thing you can ask yourself, as I mentioned a moment ago, what's the story behind the story? Have you guys ever noticed that this idea and this theme of harvest is said over and over again? This idea of sowing seeds and reaping, it's all throughout scripture, isn't it? So whenever you're reading the scripture and there's a repeated theme, and something's repeated and you're like, oh, hold on, I saw that somewhere else. In fact, I saw that in many other places you can immediately pause and say, well, this must be important. This must be an important thing because it's continually coming up. There's a theme of this idea and this metaphor and this picture that Jesus gives in this particular passage that we see in other passages all over the place. 
And so anytime that that happens, I think you can always say, what's the story behind that? What's going on there? Because not only does Jesus talk quite a bit about it, Paul talks a lot about it. The Old Testament's all about it. So here's what I want to do. Can I take you like through a quick Bible like survey here? Okay, I'm going to give you a timeline. So the repeated theme of harvest, you can find it throughout Scripture, this idea of sowing and reaping. And I'm just going to walk you through a bunch. Revelation 14, it says the hour of the harvest is ripe, meaning it's about to happen. James 3, sowing righteousness brings peace. Galatians 6, 8, sow the spirit, reap eternal life. 2 Corinthians 9, 6, whoever sows sparingly reaps, also reaps sparingly. Romans 1, a harvest among the Gentiles, it's about to happen. Luke 8, the seed, of the, the seed is the word of God. Matthew 13, it's a great parable of the sower in which Jesus talks about all these different types of soil that seed gets planted in. Haggai 1, you're getting back in the Old Testament. You can actually harvest bad seed. Malachi, or Micah 6, you will sow, but you, also, but you will not reap because of disobedience. So there's this theme alive. Hosea 6, there's a harvest appointed for you. He's talking to Hosea. Jeremiah 5, enemies look to steal your harvest. Proverbs 10, don't sleep during the harvest. Psalm 107, fruitful yield, sowing seeds and planting vineyards. Job 4.8, so inequity, reap trouble. Leviticus 23, the first fruits of the harvest. Exodus 34, resting within the harvest. So even when there's seasons of work, you still get a rest. And then Genesis 1.29, every plant yielding seed is yours, Adam. Every one. Now this is just 17 examples of the hundreds of examples of harvest, sowing, seeds, reaping, fruit, not to mention the number of times that you talk about the feasts and the festivals. They're all centered around what, typically? The harvest. So what is happening in this long list of examples? Besides giving you the proof that this is a theme, we walked all the way back to where? To Genesis. We walked back to the garden. So what's going on in the garden? A lot of things are happening in the garden, right? When you and me picture the garden, we picture Adam and Eve there naked, unashamed, with God, enjoying God, and of course, enjoying one another, because they're naked. But what happens when we turn to the beginning? When you're in Genesis 1, what do you think of? You think of creation, right? Can we fill in the blank? You think of creation, don't you? Because this is where the creation account is. God creates the world. He gets all the way down to humanity, creates us. And the story of Genesis 1 shows us, even, how, even if you have a, an, a foggy view of how the world came to be, if you have some sense that you believe that there is a creator God, you can read Genesis 1 and go, this is how he created the world. No matter if it was you know, over millions of years or in six literal days or however you want to interpret this, there's this creation account of creation process being spoken to existence by God. And God's language that he speaks in our world is creation. This is how he speaks to us. He speaks to us through creation. Last weekend, we were, uh, we were hanging out with some friends at their house. They live out in the country, kind of on a ranch. There's a bunch of us there. We we're having a cookout. We we're looking out over the pond. It was a beautiful summer night. We're sitting on the porch and up flies a hummingbird beating its wings a million miles an hour, right? Which, by the way, a hummingbird flaps its wings 70 times per second. That's pretty phenomenal. 
And the guy that were at his house, he says, how can anyone deny God when you see something like that? That's what I mean by God's language is creation. Romans 8 says what? It says, the rocks will cry out. Creation cries out to us. So in Genesis 2, God creates the world, and in Genesis 2, he tells Adam to do something with this creation. He tells Adam to take care of the garden. He says, take care of the garden, take care of my creation. He tells him to cultivate the garden. So if you take Genesis 1 and you say, he tells Adam to cultivate the earth. He actually goes on and he says, after the fall, Adam, Adam and Eve sin, he goes, he goes on and says, I still want you to go out into the earth and I want you to take the land and I want you to cultivate it. This is the first form of culture, agriculture, in which you take the natural state of something and you organize it and you arrange it. This is what culture making is. You organize it and you arrange it into becoming more useful and more fruitful. So the first form of culture was agriculture. This is what God actually called Adam to do in the garden. Then he says, after he threw him out of the garden, he said, do this in all the earth. Go cultivate the earth. And so humanity then, if we take this next slide, humanity creates culture, don't they? So they create culture and agriculture, but then they start creating other forms of culture, don't they? Humanity goes on and we create cities and we build nations and we build people groups and there's cultures all over the world. And then someone who really, really gets the world and knows what is what, what do we call that person? They're a very cultured person, right? And so culture then does what? Culture does something. The culture tells a story. Every culture tells a story. This is the dash. You are cultivating life. You are cultivating something with your dash, with your story. It's telling the world something. But the way you cultivate it is by how you plant in it, the way you arrange and organize, and the things that are being produced from it. That's the story that you're telling. And so we're sitting here going, how did we get from the woman at the well to Genesis chapter 1 in the garden? Because Jesus brought it up. Jesus brought it up when he brought up this idea of the harvest. He was reminding, he's always, he was always reminding them that, listen, it's always, it's always about the way God created. It's about the order of the world that's already come to be. There's an order in creation, isn't there? You plant a seed, you take care of it, you nurture the soil, it will bring life, but it won't just bring life. It'll multiply life. It'll bring a, a bigger yield. And so this is what humanity has been invited into, that God created the world with an order. And this is the story that's sort of behind this story. When you go, why is he bringing up harvest? It's all throughout the scriptures. He's reminding us of what he called humanity to do. And he's also reminding us that you will reap what you sow. Now, usually when you say that statement, you reap what you sow, we see it in like a karma lens, don't we? You do something good, something good will be done in return. And we see it more in an individual sort of perspective, but it's actually very communal. Meaning again, I said this earlier, but the scriptures are never written with the me-centric sort of understanding. It's always written in the context of communal. It's us. So what you do affects everybody else. And what I do affects you. I think we could say that in general terms, but I don't think we really truly understand that in the way we live. 
we think what I do affects me and what you do affects you. So, hey, you do your thing, I do my thing, we're all good. But the truth is, the truth is, is what I sow in life, the things that I do in life, it has a communal sort of impact. And so that's why when great-grandpa does something, and it has a generational ripple effect. That's why when I do something and I share something with a friend that's life-giving, and they take that and receive it, and they share that life-giving thing with someone else, and it has a ripple effect, not just for generations, maybe it has a geographical ripple effect. I had a friend years ago, several years ago. Um, he passed away. His name is Larry Smith. And he told me in 2005 about this ministry. He, he was one of those guys that just cared so much about things, people that were marginalized, you know, people that were hurting. He was always, like, pushing me on that. Like, I was, like, the person that he would come to. Like, we got to do something about this. we got to do something about this. I was a youth pastor at the time. I didn't, do, I didn't know anything. And Because youth pastors don't know anything. <laughs> that was a joke. Um, but I, 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 he came to me in 2005. He says, hey, you need to get, meet with me about the, with this guy about um, this mission in Haiti. This mission in Haiti called Mission of Hope. It's on the outside of Port-au-Prince. You need, you need to go meet with this guy. He's in Oklahoma City. He works for this mission. I'm like, all right, okay, we'll go meet with him. Meet with him. And he's like, you don't understand, Tim. Like, this is the poorest country in the Western Hemisphere. This is in 2005. This is before the earthquake. Nobody's talking about Haiti. I go, okay. So we go meet with him. I'm compelled enough. I was like, yeah, we need to do, let's, let's, organ, let's do something with this, this organization. We sent a trip. Actually, Michael went on that very first trip. I didn't even get to go because I was going on another trip. And then I ended up leaving that church Larry kept pushing me. Even after I left that church, he's like, hey, you need to stay involved in Mission of Hope. You need to stay involved in Mission of Hope. I go to Journey Church. And I start telling people about Mission of Hope, and, and then all of a sudden, we start organizing some trips, and we actually make the Mission of Hope the key strategic partner for Journey Church in 2009. Then, 2010 happens, and there's an earthquake. And we start sending all sorts of trips out, and then OU Athletic Department gets involved, and then there's OU trips going, and then these other churches come to us and say, hey, what are you doing with Haiti? And, and I actually talk to churches all over the country that are doing stuff now, still today, with Haiti and the Mission of Hope. And I believe there's, in the neighborhood of tens of thousands of people that have went to <laughs> Haiti because of Larry Smith. And, and I think about the, the ripple effect when someone sows a seed about something that they care about, when they see something that matters and something that's broken and something that's hurting and they say, you know what, I'm not just going to do something about it. I'm going to get others to do something about it. I'm going to invite others into this. This is where the exponential multiplying factor of the kingdom comes alive in which you can't expect or you can't even, you can't even quantify what God's Economy, as my friend Bo always says, does. It will go much bigger and much larger. So that today, there's this massive reminder of God's order to the whole cosmos that the seeds that you are sowing today, they will matter not just today. They will matter not just for you. They will matter for years to come. And they will matter for way more people than you can ever imagine.
And so this little card that you had sitting on your seat when you came in, well, we're going to use it for the next few minutes to sort of lead us in a few thoughts. But I want to put some questions in front of you that are intended to invite you to imagine and to dream, to hunger and thirst for more, to invite you into a deeper and more intentional life. I'm going to explain it as we go, but just imagine these four spaces in your life that I wouldn't say are the only things that you probably um, do, but I think they are pretty important places. But if I was going to ask you, what are you sowing into your family right now? What are you sowing into your church? What are you sowing into your city? And what are you sowing into your workplace? Um, I wonder what you would be able to say. How are you living well? So if we started looking at this and we said, what are you sowing into your family? Maybe it's, maybe it's like Rosser said in the video. Maybe, it's, maybe you need to start sowing time. And maybe I'll even phrase it a little differently. Not what are you sowing, but what do you need to begin sowing into your family? And some of you are going, oh, I don't lead a family. That's fine. You have a family. Maybe it's practical things like taking your kids on dates, or maybe it's taking your spouse on a date. How long has it been since you took your spouse on a date? You know, when I think about family, I think about our dads, and I say, dads, how are you doing at leading your family spiritually? Are you just the provider? Are you just the playtime dad? Are you just the enforcer dad? How are you leading your family spiritually? Maybe you need to dream and get a bit of a vision for your family. And it could start, it could start with one night a week. It could start with one night a month. It could start with one decision. It could start with one way of being consistent and encouraging your kids. For those of us who are parents, maybe you have family members who you need to lead. You know what I'm talking about? They are struggling. You have anybody in your family that you would say is a hot mess? You know what I'm saying? You can leave them by loving them, by serving them, by encouraging them. And so today, there's, there's a card here because there's the intentional thought of maybe you're going to write something down, which most of us never do. But today, I'm going to introduce you to a thing called a pen. And you're going to be able to write on this. What is something you can start sowing into your family that you aren't doing right now that you're like, I want to sow better things. I want to leave and tell a better story. When you think about your church, this church family, for a lot of us, this is our church family. Some maybe not. Maybe you're just visiting today. But for some of us, I would say no matter what your church is, what's something you sow in your church family? Maybe it's relationship. Maybe you're that person that comes in at 932. You know what I'm talking about? And you find a really kind of a, a spot in the room that's pretty safe. And then as soon as we're done, you're like Nick Cage and you're gone in 60 seconds. You know what I'm saying? It's a struggle. <laughs> but you know what I'm saying? You're one of those people that you're like, I, I, I like coming to church, but I'm not connected. Maybe sowing relational seeds. Maybe saying, I'm going to really actually let this be my church family, not just the place I attend. Maybe that's the seed. Maybe some of you, it's like, you know what? 
I have this thought in my head that I know I should do, but I just keep not doing it. It has everything to do with my money. And here, I'm not, I'm not asking for anybody's money. That's not about, this isn't about our church. This is about you and your relationship with the Father. And I've, I've come to this conclusion in my life when it comes to my resources, my money. It's about love. It's not about law. And if I love the Father, if I love Him, I'm going to obey what His Word says. And I'm going to, and I'm going to give myself first to Him. And so for some of us, we have, we have money problems because we can't give God our first. You know right? Leviticus 23, when he talks about the first fruits, he's talking about that is what he's talking about. The principle of saying the first of what I receive in life is his. And when we can't do that, and we can't sow that seed, guess what? What's the story we're telling? That I don't trust God. That, that I'm more important that I think my needs are bigger than his ability to, to, to take care of me. So this isn't about anything other than what's, this, what's the story, what's the seed that you're going to th- start sowing. Maybe it's to be more intentional with the things beyond your money, like your spiritual gifts that you have. Maybe it's time to quit sitting in the middle of the crowd and to move off and out of the sidelines and into the role of leadership, servanthood pushing us forward as a church. And what are you sowing into your city? We spent so much time on that last week. Maybe this means your neighborhood. Maybe it means that you're going to choose a neighbor that you're going to start helping because you've seen that they've got some pain. Maybe it's to bring life by throwing a block party. I don't know. Maybe it's to look around for the broken parts of our city and to say, you know what, I can do something about that. And then what are you going to start sowing into your workplace? And that could be as simple as maybe you start asking people how they're doing, not on the run, but you stop and say, no, really, how are you? Maybe it's bringing cookies on Friday, I don't know. Maybe it's praying for your, blo- your boss or your employees. So many people complain about their, blo- their, their, blo- their boss or the people they work with, but then they never pray for them. I think that's interesting, isn't it? So maybe, maybe we have a lot that we can start sowing. You know, you know, I've been saying this. How does this transform us? I keep saying that, and I keep saying that the nature of the Scripture is about us and not me because we make everything about me. Sowing seeds is about us. It's about everybody. It's about bringing life to an entire city. It's about living a life to where at the end you could say, I'm a living well and everything that I have is everybody else's. I have a mentor years ago. He said, I want to give it all away. And I said, tell me more. He said, I want to live a life in which if I have words to give, I give them. If I have wisdom to give, I offer it. If I have money to give, I give it. If I have time to give, I'm going to give it. And nothing is mine. It's all Everyone's. It's all for the purpose of the kingdom. It's all for the sake of the gospel. I want to give it all away. And I said, I can, I can get with that. So this little statement that you see at the top of the card. The world needs people who believe that living well is not rooted in accomplishments or accumulation. But instead, it's rooted in our love for God and what we sow into our family, church, workplace, and city. Some of us have to start right there at the top and say, what am I sowing into loving God? 
Am I actually giving him the time and the devotion and the affection in my life? Do I have a space of worship? Do I, do I set him up as king of my life? Do I truly love him with all of my heart, mind, soul, and strength? You can cultivate that. What is God, going all the way back to Genesis 1, what did God call us to do? To cultivate. To take things and arrange them. Take things in their natural state and say, I can make this better and more useful and more what? Fruitful. So, as we close the series, I want us to think about it this way and Maybe in these next few moments you can just write some thoughts down and maybe you can take this with you and write more thoughts down and keep this for a little while and let this just bounce around in your heart and your soul. Would you bow your heads with me? I do want to give you a few minutes before we sing to just pray on this. So maybe on your own, just start praying. Praying that the Lord would give you a vision of what it could look like to live well. Go ahead and start just praying a prayer right now. Maybe God's speaking to your heart. Maybe you've heard something that you weren't expecting to be thinking about today, but yet you are. Father, I pray that as we take a few minutes to end this morning, that, Lord, we would, we would sit in this moment and we'd receive whatever it is You're speaking to us, and that, Lord, Your Holy Spirit would lead us and guide us from this moment. But, Lord, we, we trust You. We, we thank You for what You say to us and how You speak to us and how Your Word should transform us. Lord, You're a good God and You're full of grace and goodness, and You don't push us to more work out of the sense of it being labor-intensive, but you push us further and deeper and, further and farther than we ever thought we could go for the sake of your love for us because you know what's best. And so, Lord, I pray that, Lord, we would trust you. We pray these things in your name. Amen.